For legal purposes. Okay. Good afternoon. And today we're going to be talking about something that us Jews are very good at to the extent that Moses mentions it three times in this week's Torah reading. God blames us for it, and we're going to own it this week, and that is being stubborn. In the 90s, there was this fellow, his name was Moti Ashkenazi, a very well-known druggie who was arrested multiple times by the Tel Aviv Police Department. He was a person who used to hang around the beaches of Tel Aviv and snatch people's bags, sell them, and this way help his addiction. Well, it was in June of 1997, at the end of June when the vacation was about to break, summertime, all the students were about to hang out on the beaches of Tel Aviv. This would have been a very good opportunity for this fellow Moti to make some good deals and to be able to find some good baggages that he would be able to sell. And this way, of course, continue to feed his addiction. He sees this beautiful bag, this coach bag, sitting on, this, on the shores of Tel Aviv. And as he gets closer to snatch the bag, he sees some wires coming out of it. He calls the police, and the police don't come. Yeah, we know you already. We're not really going to come to arrest you. You're making up a prank call. What do we need you? But after calling numerous times, finally they sent a detonator over and they realized that this was going to be a bomb that could have exploded. This was in the time where many cafes were being blown up in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and so on. And this way avoided many people getting hurt and killed. As a sign of, uh, because of his heroism, the Tel Aviv Police Department awarded him to send him to rehab where they were able to help him. He eventually got married and had a child, but he had one problem now. He needed to support his family. What was he going to do? The only thing he knew how to do was to snatch bags and sell them. So how was he going to make a living? So what they did was they hired him to be a supervisor of the beach in Tel Aviv, of the shores in Tel Aviv, as the police at the time, to make sure to protect people's bags. Now, of course, you can imagine the other people in his business had a very hard time catching bags because he was the one that taught them to trade, so he knew all the <laughs> tricks. And that's the way he continued to be able to be a person who was able to overcome his habitual behaviors, but not only take his negative, but use his negative behavior and make it for the good. Now, while this may be a very beautiful story how somebody took a downtime, took something that was a negative in their mind, in their life, and they used it to be able to grow and to help people with it, on the other hand, it's not only his story, but it's actually everybody's story. Everything that God created in the world, and in fact, when we talk about, as we mentioned many times, on the sixth day of creation, God said he created the evil inclination. That evil inclination is actually, the evil inclination is called very good because the evil inclination is the momentum to give us to take our negative, negative attitudes and make them positive. Because nothing that God gives us is bad. It's only what we use it for doesn't make it bad or good. Let's just take an example. The first sin that ever happened in the world. The sin of Adam and Eve. In the beginning of the book of Genesis, God comes along to, Mo, to Adam and he says, from every tree that's in the garden, you can eat. But from the tree of knowledge, don't eat. Again, what does he tell him? You can eat everything, 
but from the tree of knowledge they'll eat. All of a sudden, the snake, who is the evil inclination, who is the Satan, who is the negativity in life, what does the snake tell Eve? God forbade you to eat from all the garden, all the trees of the garden. Taste from it, so you should be like God. Did God forbade them to eat from all the trees in the garden? Absolutely not. What did God forbade them? Only one. How did the snake turn it? Everything. Oh God, he's a very mean individual. Because look what he's doing. He's denying you from the, what are his exact words that the Nachash said? He's denying you from the pleasures of the world. Why is he denying you the pleasures of the world? Because he doesn't want you to be like God. He doesn't want you to be open-minded. He doesn't want you to have that ability to think for yourself. But in reality, God denied them any other pleasures. God denied them only from one tree. While everything else they were allowed to have. What we see over here is something very clearly. And as the commentators say at the time, that the snake used an exaggeration to be able to accentuate the evil, the negativity, to create this negative feeling towards godliness and therefore feel that they're, so to speak, imprisoned. And the only way they'll be able to escape is if they eat from the tree of, of, tree of knowledge. This is the exact method of every single type of definition of prohibition that comes into our life. If you think about it, when we all of a sudden seem confined or locked and say, oh, this is too much for me, it's constrained. Why? It's because it's an exaggeration. Go to a store today. You can eat from every product. Yes, there are some products you can't eat from. But majority of stuff you can eat is kosher. Why do you have to pick that one thing that's not kosher? Because that's the evil inclination. It tells us, come on, you're going to restrain yourself from having that. A thief. He can go get any job. But he likes that type of money. Or he wants to be able to get that very quickly. He doesn't want to be able to do the works, so to speak. What we see over here, the message that we see, that God gives us challenges, attitudes, and attributes, emotions, and feelings. They're not here to knock us, but they're here to uplift us. And the question is only what we do about it and how we use it. Meaning that there's nothing in this world that is negative, so to speak, on its own. It's only if you use it for a negative way. That means we have the ability to take every attitude and every feeling and every emotion and use it for something good or use it for something bad. And this takes us to one of the things that we find in this week's Torah reading that is mentioned an attitude of the Jewish people which seemingly God uses it as a fault that we have. Moses uses it as a compliment. And with that, he is able to gain favor in God's eyes. And with this, God forgives the Jewish people. And the question we're going to have is, how is it possible that that same exact attitude can be used for the negative and for the positive? How does Moses use it for, so to speak, the defense, and God uses it for the prosecution? Same evidence. And what is it? Is the fact that Jewish people are stubborn. Three times God tells Moses about the sin of the golden calf and saying, your people are a bunch of stubborn necks. They are stubborn. There's no way I can change them. And all of a sudden, Moses answers back, may God walk upon us because we are stubborn. Is stubborn a good thing or is stubborn a bad thing? So let's go a little bit back. And what we talk about the sin of the golden calf. 
And the Sunnah of the Golden Calf is probably one of the most interesting episodes if we look at the history of the Jewish people, how it even happened. We're talking about not even three months after the Jewish people came out of Egypt. Three months since they crossed the sea, or 40 days since God came to them at Mount Sinai and said, don't have any other gods. And over here, what do the Jewish people do? They go and they make a golden calf. The Talmud compares it, because the Jewish people are compared to a bride and a groom. God is our groom, all the Jewish people are the bride. Imagine a bride is walking out of the wedding, and instead of going home with the groom, she goes and has a promiscuous affair. That's exactly what happened. The Jewish people, God, Moses is sitting with God at Mount Sinai, studying the Torah of how he's going to present it to the Jewish people, what they just heard. And while he's studying the Torah with God, God says, hello, your people down there, they're busy serving the golden calf. What's going on here? Moses, in the middle of beautifying the contract, basically, that God said, making with the Jewish people, and the Jewish people are going and having some type of adulterous affair with the golden calf. And what does God tell the Jewish people? As we mentioned before, three times, he says, listen here, these guys are stubborn, and therefore I'm going to destroy them. The Jewish people are a stubborn people, and therefore I'm going to destroy them, and Moses re responds. He doesn't say about our forefathers. He talks about the promise that God made to the forefathers and so on. But then he says, what's going to happen? What are the nations of the world going to say? That you took them out of Egypt and you couldn't handle bringing them into the land of Israel, and therefore you wiped them out? So God says, you know what? I'm not going to wipe them out. But I'm not going with them anymore. I'll send my angel, let the angel go and lead with them. Because if they make trouble again, next time I'm going to wipe them out. But Moses petitions to God again, and what does he say? But there are stubborn people. You can't just leave them with an angel. And God says, fine. And acquiesces and says, I'll lead with the Jewish people. What is it? But on the other, on the condition that the Jewish people now had to return those crowns that they received when they accepted the Torah and they said, Nasef and Ishmael, we will do and we will hear. The Talmud tells us that the angels came and gave, put a place to crown in each one of their heads. Moses himself took his, his tent and moved it away from the Jewish people, so to speak, condemned the acts that the Jewish people did. Those that partook in the actual sin of the golden calf were killed. And the rest of the Jewish people were now in a state of repentance. But what happened here? What is this stiff neck? Is the stubbornness a good thing or a bad thing? And if it is a good thing, why does God say it's a problem with the Jewish people? And if it's a bad thing, why does Moses invoke it to be able to ask for repentance? In fact, if you take it a step further, what was the objective of the Jewish people at this point? To repent of what they did wrong. Stubbornness is seemingly the antithesis to being repenting. Repenting means you regret what you've done wrong. Stubbornness says, I'm not going to listen to what everybody says. I'm going to say the same exact person who I am, regardless of what you want. In fact, the words that the Torah uses in the terminology of here is, Ki am because you're a nation of a stiff neck. What does it mean, a stiff neck? And the commentators explain that the word stiff neck in this case, in each one of them, it says, because they are a stiff neck, the same way a person who has a stiff neck looks in one way and doesn't look to the side, means they can't tolerate rebuke. And therefore, they did what they wanted. In any of these cases, by Nachmanides gives one interpretation, Rashi gives another interpretation, regardless of what the interpretations are, at the end of the day, 
What is God, what is Moshe saying? That there is stiff necks, saying that this is the same problem that the Jewish people have. That because they are stiff necked, therefore you have to forgive them. And God actually does forgive them. Eventually, Moses is given the 13 attributes of mercy. And what are the 13 attributes of mercy that any time God gets upset with the Jewish people? Moses says those 13 attributes of mercy, and it's an automatic atonement. To the extent that Moshe then continues that the third time when he asks God, May God come and walk amongst us. And God responds, God walks amongst us because we are a stiff neck. And what does God respond? And I have atoned them to their sins and to their faults, and I've forgiven them. How does this work out? If being a stiff neck means that they're central focused, they're not turning to the sides, they're not regretting what they've done, it's a concept of stubbornness. Where is the repentance here? Why is this a good thing? Why is this a good thing that Moses at every single time is using this as an opportunity to beseech God to be able to give and ask for repentance? This doesn't seem like a good thing. In general, that we know that one of the reasons why we don't wear gold on Yom Kippur, why the Kohen Gadol didn't wear gold on Yom Kippur, was because Yom Kippur was set to atone for the golden calf. And because the golden calf was something that is made of gold, therefore the Kohen Gadol did not walk into the holy temple, into the holy of holies with the golden clothing, because the holy clothing symbolized the golden calf. And the prosecution and the defense can't be the same. Why over here in this case do we find that seemingly the prosecution and the defense are the same? Which is taking the concept that the Jewish people are stubborn. And by looking at the Hasidic interpretation and going a step further and understanding the concept of, of stubbornness, we have a whole new idea in relationship to the concept of stubborn where we're going to see that this same attitude of being stubborn, which seemingly seems as the antithesis of repentance, is actually the lifeline of Jewish people for generations. And this is what Moshe's defense is to God. He says, you know what's going to keep the Jewish people? And it says, you know, Moshe tells God like this, and this is also true. Your child's greatest fault is what's going to give you the most nachas. How is that possible? If it's his biggest fault, why is that going to give you the most nachas? That means, because what's going to happen, what they're going to work on the most is something which is their greatest fault. And if we take that greatest fault and change it around, that can bring you the greatest pleasure. And this is what Moshe is telling the Jewish people. Telling God. What's the problem of the Jews that you're saying? They're stubborn, right? Wow, that's amazing. That's the greatest thing. If there's one thing that can underline Jewish continuity for all the generations is because we were stubborn. What makes the Jewish people that after 3,333 years, we are still connected. We still have a desire to be connected to God. We're still studying in the Torah, keeping the laws that were given to us 3,330 years ago. What makes us do it? While all these New Age philosophies came and went, while well, all these great kingdoms came and went, materialism in every shape and form came in all different ways. What's the only thing that continued to come? What's the only thing that a person had to make sure that today the law of Shabbos, that one will desecrate the Shabbos or even kosher, any mitzvah, which seemingly at any time a Jew could have done like this, forget about it. It wouldn't take much effort to not do with observance. 
What gives us the ability to do it? Is that stubbornness. The fact that we are stubborn and we're committed to something that was given to us 3,333 years ago, that's what's keeping us going. So if you look at it, look at the Jewish people. The stubbornness is what kept them going. Take the Jewish people that were in the desert at the time. They are people who, very intellectuals, after 200 years being in Egypt and assimilated in the idolatry of Egypt, many of them didn't make it out of Egypt. Why? Because they didn't believe they were going to come out of Egypt. But what happens over here? If you take in the concept of what the Jewish people were at the time, we talk about stubborn. In the Haftorah for today, of this week's Torah reading, we read about a story of Eli. I'm sorry, not Eli, of Eliyahu and of Elijah the prophet. Of Elijah the prophet on the Mount Carmel, where he brought and he made a contest between him and the people of the Baal. But what's the story behind the story? How did we get to that story? And the Talmud explains the background of how Elijah the prophet brought the Jewish people to this contest that was there by the story of the Baal, which is as follows. It's actually a very sad story. When the Jewish people entered the land of Israel, the first conquest they made was Jericho. And as you recall, there was a story going with the chauffeurs and Joshua with all the army blew the chauffeurs and the wall of Jericho collapsed and sunk into the ground. Joshua made a curse. Any person that's going to rebuild Jericho, when he lays the cornerstone, his first son is going to die. When he makes the, 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 the celebration of opening it up, his last son's going to die. And so there was in the time of Ahav, this was in the era of the first temple, about a hundred years after King Solomon, when the kingdom split up, there was a fellow by the name of Chiyal, and this fellow went along, and he decided, I don't care about Joshua, I'm going to rebuild Jericho. And as Joshua has said, on the first day that he may let set the cornerstone, his first son died, and throughout the construction of Jericho, the rest of his children were dying, until when he went to open up the doors of Jericho that he rebuilt, his seventh son died. At the Shiva house, two people meet, Ahav the king and Elijah the prophet, come to pay condolences to this fellow. And Ahav the king, who was an idolater, his wife Jezebel was very well known for idolatry, turns to Elijah the prophet and says, Ha! Joshua's curse came to fruition. Moses' curse did not. So he says, what do you mean? So he says, Joshua cursed whoever's going to build Jericho, the person's going to kill all his children are going to die out, and it happened. Moses said, whoever goes astray and starts serving idols, there's not going to be rain in the land, there'll be a famine. And look, 450 prophets of the Baal all over the place. I have idolatry spread throughout the land of Israel and life is good. Elijah the prophet did not like what he heard. And for the next three years, there was a terrible famine amongst the Jewish people in the area of where Ahav lived. Which brought us to this episode that the Jewish people now realized they did something wrong and they had to repent and Elijah the prophet came to them and said, How long are you going to jump on both sides of the bandwagon? Make up your mind. Either you're going to be an idolater or you're going to serve God. And they said, let's have a contest. 
And the contest was that Elijah the prophet was going to make one altar, and the Baal people were going to make another altar. And whoever gets fire, because they were not allowed to bring their own fire, that's who is the right one. And what did these Baal people do, the idolaters did? They built 450 different types of altars, or different types of sacrifices they were going to bring. And this fellow, Chiyoel, this guy that built Jericho, snuck underneath one of the altars, and when they would sing a certain code, he would light the fire, so they should be able to have a fire. But miraculously, a snake came, stung him, and killed him while he was sitting under the thing, and therefore, when they were making all their dancing and everything else, no fire came to be. Elijah the prophet mocked him, he said, maybe your God's in the bathroom, maybe he's asleep, maybe make a little more noise, and of course, nothing worked, and then Elijah the prophet said to pour water all over his altar, and fire came down from heaven and consumed everything that was there. And with that, the Jewish people pronounced, Hashem, Hu Aleikim, God is our God. What do we see from here? You have a hero of a guy, Chiyo. He has a plot for himself in the cemetery. Seven of his kids died because of a curse. And he's still sitting under the altar thinking that he's going to convince God. Thinking that he's going to be able to persuade God to forgive. Where does this chutzpah come from? Where does a person not realize, don't you wake up and smell the coffee sometime? But what does that come from? This is what you call stubborn. This is what you call a person sticking to his guns. No matter what, no matter who. Can you make such deals with such individuals? Can you come to some type of agreement that this is what your God was coming from? God was coming from the notion that this is who the Jewish people are. They're stuck to idolatry. How are we going to change them? Well, what does Moses come and say? No. Moses says, this is what keeps the Jewish people going. This stubbornness is what keeps them going. Is because how do we have Jewish continuity? It's only because we're stubborn. Sometimes people use it for the negative. But the very fact that you're complaining, God, that this is the stubbornness of Jewish people, this is actually the way they can justify. There's a story told of recently happened. There's a Chabad rabbi in uh, Israel, Be'er Sheva. His name is Rabbi Moshe Dikshtein. Besides having a Chabad house, he's also their chaplain to the local prison, which I'm sure you're familiar with that here too. And he goes to the local prison, meaning the inmates there, and there's, uh, unfortunately, many of the prisoners are Jewish, and therefore he meets with them, and speaks with them, puts on film with them and everything else. There was one fellow in prison who never participated in any of the programs. Not only did not participate, he was a real, if you want to call it a real true atheist, but with a really low morale and with mock and so on and so forth. One day, he decided, and this guy was in prison not because he was a white-collar crime, he was there for probably very tough offenses that he's done. And he felt he was a drag on society, had nothing to do with anybody else, but the rabbi decided one day to meet him in his cell and have a conversation with him. And they had a conversation, a very nice conversation. After an hour, he suggests to the fellow, would you like to put on tefillin? The guy rolls up his sleeve to put on tefillin. And all of a sudden, the rabbi says, I don't know if I can put on tefillin on this guy. On his arm, he had a tattoo. Let's call it of not the most modest item. And he's thinking, how am I going to put tefillin on this arm? But in the back of his mind, he says, let me put on the tefillin, close my eyes. <laughs> he puts on tefillin with him. The guy says the Shema, everything else. 
A week later, he comes to visit him again. This time, the guy's all happy, excited, comes to the programs, he's participating. The rabbi asks him, what's going on? <laughs> he says, oh, you know what? Last week, you finally, somebody gave me some attention. I realized I have some self-worth. I'm more than happy to participate. He says, okay, so let's put on the phone now again. He rolls up his sleeve and he sees that his arm is all eaten up. It's all like uh, the skin there is all messed up. Like scabbed up. Scabbed up. So he asks him what's going on. He says, I saw last week when hey, your eyes, when you looked at my skin and you saw the, the tattoo there and I felt here's a person that saw me for who I am. Identified with I said, this is what God wants for me. I want to put on film properly without this hair. And I put salt all over the wound to get rid of it. This is the stubbornness of the Jewish people. This is the stubbornness of the Jewish people that they realize they want to have a connection to God to the greatest of ways. The, to the Talmud uses the terminology. The Medrash says, who do you think is the most chutzpah of all nations? Who has the greatest audacity? Who's the one that has the most chutzpah from all the nations of the world? Is the Jewish people. And you think, well, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And you can put it both ways. It could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing. If you use chutzpah in a good way, you can use chutzpah in a bad way. But the very fact that we have the chutzpah that no matter what happened to us in our back lines, we can still stand in front of God and connect to God. That's a beautiful thing. The stubbornness that we have. Look at the nations around us, whatever generation they've gone through, whatever they've done, in every single part of the life, there are so many people, so many nations who had it good. And their philosophies, their wisdoms are all gone. The Jewish people, the most persecuted nations, they've gone through every type of persecution. And still know who are we with today? The Jewish people are still around, sticking to what they're sticking to their guns, as they say. If we take the story this week, tonight, is something called Purim Katan. Mini Purim. And we take the story of Purim. And if you look at the story of Purim, there's a mitzvah on Purim to be joyful. But there's not only a mitzvah to be joyful. The mitzvah on Purim says, the Talmud says a person is obligated on Purim to be rejoiced, to say a little to the extent that they don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. You know, the Torah tells us on Psukis, Pesach, Shuas, also be joyful. You should rejoice in the holiday. But nowhere in the Talmud does it say the measure of how much you have to rejoice. You have to have a little bit of wine. Why? Pay it for it. Which is the one holiday, which is a rabbinic holiday, not a biblical holiday. All of a sudden are we told we have to rejoice beyond expectations. Why is it? So the seemingly simple interpretation is because Purim is that one holiday where every single Jew, men, women, and children, it was the only time in history that every single Jew, regardless of where they were, were, God forbid, almost being almost being killed. That means Haman's decree was, I'm going to go for every stretch of my imagination to be able to get any Jew wherever they are, because Achashverosh had authority and autonomy in 127 countries, which is basically the ruler of the world, and he was going to hunt down every single Jew, God forbid. Every single Jew, and therefore it's the greatest holiday, the fact that we all survive in the greatest of ways. That means that the saving, the Purim's miracle, is probably the most important miracle that happened throughout Jewish history. 
That's on the simple interpretation. But deeper, we come to see that Purim actually has shown that the stubbornness of the Jewish people is what persevered. Take for a moment the story of Purim. Let's indulge in the story a moment. In the beginning of the story of Purim, Achashverosh makes a beautiful feast. Day number seven, he calls his wife Vashti to show off her beauty. Vashti, who she herself came from royalty, says, I don't have to fall prey to the foolish king of Achashverosh. I am not showing up. <coughs> Achashverosh gets upset. He doesn't know what to do. He calls over his ministers and his wise men. and says, what are we going to do with the queen Vashti? And they all of a sudden come up with a brainstorm of an idea. We're going to kill her. But on what basis? We can't just kill somebody. We have to make a verdict or a reason. And the reason is because what every other man going to answer his wife should she say, I don't want to listen to you just like Vashti did. That means if there is a man in some type of country in the 127 countries that he is going to tell his wife to do something and the woman's going to say, the same way Vashti didn't listen to Hashverosh, I don't have to listen to you. This is going to create a breakdown in authority and therefore she has to show an example, they have to show an example that Vashti is not listening and we can kill her. Now why did the sages have to take, why do the wise men, so to speak, have to come up with some type of convoluted law to say that if some guy in Timbuktu is not his wife, not going to listen to him, so therefore we have to kill Vashti. Just kill Vashti because she didn't listen to authority. Kill Vashti because she didn't listen to the king. But what was the problem? Just a few days earlier, Achashverosh made a law. And if you recall, Achashverosh's law when it came to the, to the party of Achashverosh was that every single person gets to drink according to his wishes. What does it mean, gets to drink according to his wishes? That there is no more authority. Every person is a certain individual that can make up his own laws. If I want a big cup, I get a big cup. I want a small cup, I want a small cup. I want less, I want less. I want more, I want more. That means there's no more listening to authority. He wanted to have everybody do what they want. Take away the authority. That was his whole point. Take away authority of God. Take away authority of people. Take away any type of authority. So when Vashti comes along and says, I don't want to show up to your party, Vashti's following suit. You said there's no authority. I'll tell you what to do. You tell me what to do. They couldn't kill Vashti on that premise. Why couldn't he kill her on that premise? Because she was exactly living up to what he wanted the party to be. Everybody do what they want. But he had to kill her. So they had to come up with some type of convoluted law to say that this is a bad role model. Not because she wasn't listening to authority. Over here what we see is something very interesting. The concept over here that the Jewish people were able to stand strong into a place where lacked authority. A Jew that was living 70 years in Paras, in Persia, not in the land of Israel. And all of a sudden, Mordechai comes and stands up against the evil Haman. And he says, you know what? We're going to gather the Jews together. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. And what does Esther say? Listen to the words of the Megillah. Leich kenoises yehudim go and gather all the Jews. All the Jews. Not some of the Jews, every single one of the Jews. Something unique happened during the time of Purim. That every single Jew participated in repenting to God for the terrible decree of Haman. When it came to the story of Egypt, as we mentioned, many Jews stayed in Egypt. They didn't want to leave Egypt, and therefore they died. When it came to the story of Hanukkah, there were many Jews, most Jews, 
And the Maccabees were only a small minority. Most Jews assimilated and became Greeks. You will not find anywhere in the story of Purim that any of the Jews were going to assimilate them to become like Haman. Because if they would have, they wouldn't have been killed. And we don't find that any of them took upon that idea. In the most darkest, the most harshest decree ever in history, we don't find that one Jew should be willing to give up his faith and commit to what Haman wanted. What is this teaching us? What gave them the power and the strength was the very fact they had the stubbornness. They're not going to give in. And for that, the simcha, the joy that we have, is what kind of joy? An unmitigated joy. Not a joy which is measured, a joy that comes out of stubbornness that doesn't make a difference or differentiate, because this was a time that every single Jew stepped up to the plate in the greatest way, that they did not allow anything to stop them. Not one Jew. And this is what the Torah tells us when we come to the same idea of stubbornness. This concept of stubbornness can be used either for the positive or for the negative. And the same is true with every attitude that God gives us. Every emotion that God gives us can be used for the good or for the bad. There's nothing inherently bad that God created in this world. It is our freedom of choice that determines it, that makes it good or bad. Take, for example, another one. Jealousy. The terminology is used that Rachel was jealous of her sister Leah. That Leah had more children than she did, that she didn't have any children. Do we think that Rachel was really jealous? In fact, the Talmud and the Medrash explains, the Hasidism teaches us, that jealousy was there, meaning she was jealous. She looked to see, to inspire within herself, how she too can bring in tribes into the world. Because in order for somebody to have children, they have to have a desire to have children. They have to have a will to have children. And therefore, in order to have that will, she had to create a certain instinct within herself, a certain feeling that would cause her to be able to be pregnant. It's all in the willpower. I'll tell you just an interesting story. There was a person who I knew um, who wasn't there after they were an older couple when they got married and they weren't able to have children for a little bit and they were thinking of adapting a child and when they went to adopt about they went for somebody to adopt a child who needed a lot of money especially in America to be able to show funds so they went to take a loan to be able to have the money to be able to adopt a child so the person that came to and asked for a loan said why don't you go first ask the Rebbe for a bracha for a child before you adopt they went to the Rebbe to ask for a bracha. This was by dollars. And the Rebbe gave them a bracha and had a child. And in fact, many people, they've then seen that many people once, if they don't have children, but once they decide that they want to have a child, that they're all adopt, all of a sudden they themselves become pregnant. Because if they put themselves in the mode and the desire to have a child, it can help them conceive to have a healthy child. What the point is, that Rachel over here in Leah, she wanted something for herself, thinning that the jealousy, meaning the jealousy that she wanted to be able to own it for herself, create that intense desire. The Alter Rebbe says it as well. When it comes, the Alter Rebbe says if a person has a desire for something, you want something, you crave something really bad, there's two ways that you can go about it. You can say, yeah, what do you want it for? Or you can take that desire and use it for something holy. This is what we have an idea, the same idea. The something is, because if you take something, so let's say somebody wants something. You say, no, you can't have it. You break it. So you break it today, you break it today, you break it tomorrow, but then eventually, you're not gonna have the strength 
to break it any longer. But if you take the desire and use it for something positive, then automatically it will change and transform you don't have it. They have it today in psychology as well, people that have addictions. Why do they find that people that come off any type of addiction, they should become mentors to people who have addictions? And the reason is because they still have the addiction. They never get rid of the addiction. But if you use the addiction to be able to help somebody else, then you're taking that desire, but you're channeling it in a positive way. And that's the exact idea. We can be addicted to Torah. We can be addicted to Judaism. We be addicted to good things. The concept that a person has a mechanism within himself to take any desire, any emotion, and to be able to govern it. And this is what the Alter Rebbe tells us in Tanya that the human being has the power with the freedom of choice to be able to govern their emotions and not the opposite way around. And when our emotions govern us, you're then just worse than an animal. Because just like an animal, its emotions govern and doesn't use its intellect. And that's why if you think about a person who, let's say, needs to be a diabetic or a diet or a heart condition, and why do they cause themselves trouble? It's because they don't allow their intellect to govern their emotions and allow their emotions to govern them. But if they channel it in the right place, then that gives us a whole new idea. There was once a story. Now, this is a very famous story. It's in Ayyem That once a chassid came to the Alter Rebbe and the Tzemach said the story. The Tzemach said that somebody, once a wealthy individual, came and brought a gift to the Alter Rebbe, first Chabad Rebbe. And he brought him a Shmek Tabak. Those days people used to snuff, you know. Uh, snuff. Snuff, yeah, snuff. They used to bring snuff. So he brought him a silver box for snuff. And he brought it to the Alter Rebbe. Yeah, the devil looks at the individual and says, there's one limb that God gave me that doesn't have any cravings, which is the nose. Doesn't have any desires. And you want to make that also have as a desire? And it says that he took the snuff box and he took it apart and he used the top of it, because it was silver, for a mirror to check if his tulum was in the right place. And the Tzemach Tzedek then continued and said, I used particularly the words, he didn't break it, but he took it apart. Why? Because my grandfather did not break things. He corrected things. Everything that we have in this world, we can correct, we can uplift it, we can make it something greater. We don't have to break it. We don't have to destroy it. We don't destroy things. And this is the difference. The Rebbe explains that everything we have in this world, we have to know how to use it for the positive and use it for the good. Even the concept of stubbornness. Any type of attitude or emotion or, or, or behavior. And the question is today, so how do we use this level of stubbornness? And this goes back, we come today in today's day and age. In order for us to live a life, not to fall prey to the things that are happening around us, that a person's belief is threatened, the faith in God is threatened every single day, we need to have and be stubborn and strong not to fall and to say, I want to be like the Joneses. You have to be stubborn. You have to not care about what's around you. And the very fact that we are stubborn and we're going to be stubborn enough that we say we believe that Moshiach is going to come and take us out of this exile, that stubbornness is going to bring us the absolute redemption. Because when we are stubborn, stick to our guns, stick to our cause, we know that we'll be able to get through it eventually. That's your plan.